Well, Merry Christmas, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online because you're snowed in, join, uh, wrapping presents and sipping eggnog. It is great to have you along for the ride. And a special welcome to those of you in the room who your normal church was closed. And so you found us as an abnormal church. And so we welcome you to the party. Uh, this year, our Christmas Eve service uh, is actually a part of the last of a series of talks that we've been doing called Seasons that explores the absolutely fascinating connections between Jesus and five of the annual feasts that God gave to ancient Israel. And those feasts are outlined in the Old Testament in a really interesting document called Leviticus. Uh, the feasts we've explored, they look like this. Passover, first fruits, Pentecost, the Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. Um, and now, and I've mentioned this each week in the series because there's new people always with us, but um, if you're here and you aren't Jewish, and most of us aren't, there's a few that I know among us, but if most of us aren't, it would be very fair for you to ask why you should care about the feasts of ancient Israel. And if that's what you're thinking, then you should know that the Hebrew word translated feast is mikra, and mikra can also be translated rehearsal. In other words, Christian scholars have long noted that the Jewish feasts were designed by God not only to remind the people of Israel what God had done for them in the past, but also to point them forward to something that he would one day do, as it turned out, not just for them, but for the whole world in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, and this is super cool, a pastor by the name of Paul, who wrote many of the documents that made it into the New Testament of the Bible, he noted in a letter to early Christians that Jesus was actually the fulfillment of the Jewish feasts. In other words, as it turns out, they were pointing to him all along. So, uh, so far in the series, we've discovered how Jesus fulfilled four of the feasts that I put up. And today, as you might imagine, we get to talk about the Jewish feast that Jesus fulfilled when he was born in a manger around 2,000 years ago in a little town called Bethlehem, right. But before we go there, and really to get us going, I want to ask the parents among us a question. And the question goes like this. Do you ever wish your kids could understand how much you love them? Do you ever wonder or wish your kids could understand how much you love them? I mean, I know I have. As many of you know, my wife and I have four boys, and they're all incredible. Uh, but our third son, Colton, he's the one in the blue. I said that the first service, and there were like three of them in blue, which is not helpful. He's the third tallest of the boys. How's that, right? Uh, but he's especially unique in the way that he sees things. And when he was younger, he and I had a tradition where each night I would go up to his bedroom and read him the same book, because that's what he demanded. It was called Sophie's Squash. And if you're interested in a good book for kids, it's a good one. I have it memorized. I can tell you after service, every word. But anyway, after Sophie's Squash, I would tell him that I loved him. And each night he would look back at me, grin, and respond, I know, Dad. You say that every night. <laughs> and I'm like dude, I'm trying here, right? But I would walk back down the stairs thinking, I just don't think he gets it. It's like, I know what I want to communicate to him, but I just can't seem to do it. And, and it's the same way for all of my boys. I mean, I wish they could understand how much I love them. And, and I wish they wouldn't, you know, secretly suspect that their mom and I stay up late at night like a couple of Bond villains plotting how to make their lives miserable, because we don't. <laughs> and uh, I wish they could understand that we really do always have their best interests in mind and that we're always on their side. Because I'm telling you, if they could really know how we felt about them, 
then they'd be better able to trust us as we try to guide them to live in a way that is the best for them. And and I wanted to start there, because that is a weird way to start a Christmas Eve message, I know. Um, Because in a sense, I believe that the authors of the Bible record that in ancient times, God, the creator, kind of felt the same way. And if that's the case, just consider the complexities of that situation. Like, it's hard enough for me to get my kids to understand how much I love them. What could you do if you're God? Like, what do you do if you're seemingly unknowable and aren't immediately tangible? In other words, how does God, the creator of heaven and earth, let the people that he created know how he feels about them? How can he show us what he's like, especially in the context of a world that has largely turned its back on him? Well, I'm actually convinced that the answer to that question has everything to do with the reason that we've gathered today. And with the rest of our time, I want to show you what I mean by that. And so to start, I need to introduce you to a Jewish feast called Tabernacles. And it's the last of the fall feasts of Israel, late October, early November each year. And just notice how God instructs the children of Israel concerning this feast. He tells them that once a year, check out what they have to do. He says, live in temporary shelters for seven days. I have a Jewish friend. He tells me, oh yeah, Feast of Tabernacles, it's intense. Oh, see, it didn't work. I'm over three. I was like the third service. I believe in them. No, okay. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. Um, and then he goes on to say, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. And, and some of you are familiar with the Old Testament story, how God rescues the ancestors of a man named Abraham from slavery in Egypt. But what he's saying in this feast is that God tells his people that for one week every fall, he says, I want you to move out of your comfortable homes and into a tent as a way for you to stay connected to the history of your nation, specifically to that season when following their rescue from slavery in Egypt, they spent 40 years living in temporary portable structures as God led them one step at a time through the desert of Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that that was a season when everything had changed for them. It was a season, and this is just stunning to think about, in which God had literally dwelt in the midst of his people in a large tent called the tabernacle. And I asked the internet, and I found this amazing artist rendering of what that might have looked like. But So the tabernacle, that's the tent where God's spirit dwelled. That's right in the center of the camp. And then all of Israel would camp around it. And he would lead them through the desert. And so it was a time when they came to know God, not only as their creator, but also as their provider, someone in whom they could place their trust. You might even say that for ancient Israel, their time in the desert was a little bit like being enrolled in trust school, Like God intentionally put them in a place of need like over and over and over again so that they could learn that he would take care of them like over and over and over again. In fact, check out how their leader during this season, a man named Moses, encouraged the people of Israel shortly before they were exiting the desert and entering the land that God had promised to their ancestors. God tells them this, or Moses tells them, remember, remember, how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. He goes on. He humbled you, causing you to hunger 
and then feeding you with manna, which was basically bread from heaven, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. And then check this out. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell. Like he took care of everything during these 40 years. Moses tells the people, you have to remember, always remember, for 40 years God lived among you and led you and took care of you. Remember what he's like. Remember that he can be trusted. So that was the season, and I also think that's the heart behind the Feast of Tabernacles. Like each year, he wanted all of his people to move out of comfort and back into a temporary shelter to remember what God is like. And I'm telling you, that was amazing. It was fantastic. But, but, but if we're thinking about it, at that point in their history, the people of Israel could only have had a partial picture of God's heart towards them. And here's why I say that. I mean, God's spirit lived in the tabernacle in the midst of his people but at the same time, God also lived in unapproachable glory. In fact, he told the people that anyone who entered his presence in the tabernacle during this period, other than like one guy once a year, would immediately die. And so, though the people of Israel had a reverent fear of God during that season, it would have been a bit challenging for them to think of him in relational terms. In other words, it would have been almost impossible for them to know what he was really like like how he really felt about them and ultimately how much he loved them. Well, as it turns out, God was very aware of that reality and he had a plan to rectify the situation. And so around 700 years before the time of Jesus, God sent a message to the people of Israel. And it was a mysterious prophecy that at the time would have raised all sorts of questions. And it was recorded for us by a man by the name of Isaiah. So here's what God told the people of Israel that one day they'd be able to say, again, 700 years before the time of Jesus. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. In other words, God tells the people of Israel that one day he would send them a child who would be way more than a child. A child who would change everything. A child who would somehow be God in flesh and who would reveal God's desire for his people to relate to him as a heavenly father. But but now, to be honest, 700 years before the time of Jesus, this prophecy posed a problem for the Jewish people. I mean, they really had no precedent for a God who would take on flesh and blood and walk among them. Honestly, the idea seemed a bit blasphemous. But there it was, and they told a story for generations to their children that one day someone would come that would change everything. Now, the next thing I want to do is fast forward with you to the end of the first century when an early Jesus follower named John sat down to record his experiences with Jesus. So decades after the crucifixion and resurrection, John recorded the story of Jesus' life. And, and what he wanted to do is he wanted to record it from the very beginning. And so he begins his account with these words. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him, all things were made. And you're like, okay, so in the opening sentence, John introduces us to someone he calls the Word, and then he tells us this, the Word was with God, and somehow was God, and that everything was made through the Word. And that's pretty cryptic, and John's readers would have thought so too, and it raises, again, a lot more questions than answers, at least until you read what John wrote a few verses later. Because a few verses later, John records the thesis statement for his entire account of the life of Jesus. He basically tells us who Jesus was, and it it was a statement that would have absolutely stunned his original audience, and to be honest, if we take John seriously, it should stun us today as well. Here's what John told us. He said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and he goes on to say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, the word who was both with God and who was God, became a human being. And and this is so cool. If you translate the passage literally from the original Greek, it would read this way. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And I'm telling you, like the original readers of John's gospel, a lot of them had Jewish backgrounds or were practicing Jews, and every light on their dashboard would have been flashing because they couldn't have helped but see the connection between the birth of Jesus and the Feast of Tabernacles. John basically says, listen, as it turns out, just like God had tabernacled with ancient Israel in the wilderness for 40 years after rescuing them from slavery in Egypt so that they could catch a glimpse of who he was, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Creator took on flesh and blood and tabernacled with us so that we could see in flesh and blood what he was like on a personal, relational level, which, let's be honest, is a pretty stunning reality to consider. I mean, if John is correct about what he said here about Jesus, and I am absolutely convinced that he was, then, then by studying the life of Jesus, we can actually learn what God the creator is like. By studying the life of Jesus, we can actually learn what the creator of heaven and earth is like. And if that's a new thought for you, then you should know that Jesus actually said as much to his first followers one day. In the middle of a conversation they were having about what God was like, Jesus said this, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. Whenever Jesus talked about the father, he's talking about creator God. You will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And I'm telling you, Jesus' first followers would have been stunned, confused, and probably a bit offended by his words. In fact, one of them, a guy named Philip, sort of quietly raises his hand and made a request for clarification. He said to Jesus, "Um, okay, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. In other words, um, Jesus, you can't possibly be saying what it seems like you're saying because what you're suggesting, it just isn't possible. And in response to Philip's request, here's what Jesus says. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me and the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And I think Philip would have been stunned. I mean, the implications were unbelievable. Jesus basically says, Philip, if you want to know what God is like, watch me. And if you want to know what God would say, listen to me. 
And if you want to understand the creative's perspective on something, then pay attention to me. And, and if you want to know what God would want you to get involved in as far as a situation, just observe what I get involved in because you'll never get a better understanding about what God is like than me. I am the Word made flesh. I am the Creator tabernacling in the midst of people. And I'm telling you, I think this is so important for us to understand. This is kind of our big idea for the talk today. At Christmas, God sent Jesus to show us what he is like. That's why he lived for 30-some years before he died. He, God wanted us to see his heart in flesh and blood and to know him on a personal level. And he knew that we would never come to know him that way if he just sent us more information. So, so instead of hoping that we could like look up and figure it out, he came down and lived among us so that we could know what he's like. I mean, if you think about it, and this is really stunning, Jesus never claimed to have the best explanation for God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation for God. He basically said to people, I've come to reveal my Father's heart to you, so listen to what I say and watch what I do because you'll never come closer to knowing God than me. I'm telling you, that's, that's one of the primary reasons that God sent Jesus to be born on that first Christmas, to tabernacle among us so that we might learn to trust him. And according, to G, and according to an early Jesus follower named Matthew, this is how it happened. Matthew tells us that when the set time had fully come, in other words, everything is happening according to God's plan, but when the day arrived, God sent a messenger, an angel, to a young Jewish carpenter named Joseph who lived in a city called Nazareth to inform him that his fiancée, a woman named Mary, was pregnant and I'm telling you, in that moment, Joseph's mind would have been flooded with a whole bunch of questions like simultaneously. I mean, he would have wondered, what should I do? Like, do I shame her or do I protect her? Do, do I cover for her or do I divorce her or do I marry her? And before he could even begin to entertain any of these questions, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He goes on, she will give birth to a son because unto us a child is born and unto us a son is giving and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In other words, Joseph, the long-awaited rescuer is coming. In Hebrew, he's called the Messiah. In Greek, he's called the Christ. He's on the way. God's on the move. And not only is everything about to change for you and for Mary, but everything is about to change for everyone. Because this baby won't be like any other baby. This baby will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Heavenly Father, Prince of Peace. 
In fact, as Matthew continues his account, he sort of breaks away and he, he refers back to the prophet Isaiah. And here's what he says. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, um, Jesus was in every possible way God with us. He was the creator of heaven and earth, tabernacling with the people he created, with the people he desperately loves. And just like God had dwelt in the midst of his people for 40 years when he led them through the deserts of the Sinai Peninsula so that they could learn to trust him, in the person of Jesus Christ, he dwelt in bodily form so that people no longer had to wonder what God was like, so that we could learn to trust him and we could experience a bit of his heart towards us. And I'm telling you, when you look at Jesus and you watch him interact with people in those accounts of his life, what you see is absolutely breathtaking because as it turns out, Jesus revealed to all of us that our creator is patient and kind and humble. He's servant-hearted and trustworthy and gracious and forgiving and faithful. In other words, he was and he is unlike how people had ever imagined a God to be. Because this was a God who not only came to be with us, but who is also for us because he loves us. And so how does an infinite God who lives in unspeakable glory an unapproachable holiness to communicate his love to a finite, fallible, limited, flawed human culture. He becomes one of us. He tabernacles with us. He is born into this world as Emmanuel, God with us. And he is the light of the world. And I'm telling you that, my friends, that is the miracle of Christmas. Just calling out 
our tradition over the last many years to end our Christmas Eve service by candlelight. So part way through this next song, the ushers will be coming down and lighting the candles of some of the people on the end of the rows. And if you'd kindly pass your light down till everyone's candle is lit, that'd be awesome. And even though we have these new fancy-dancy candle holders, our legal department still has a request that as you extinguish your candles at the end of the service, you gently put your hand out in front, gently blow as to not scald, 
or set fire to the person in front of you. And we want to wish you a merry, merry Christmas. Thank you for coming tonight.
pray with me? Heavenly Father, we gather to celebrate the child that was born, the son that was given, the one who revealed your heart. We gather to celebrate his birth and to thank you for the life and the light and the hope and the grace that we find in him. We pray for all of us that as we take the small lights of our lives into our families, into our community, into our world, that we might reflect just a little bit the light of your son. For today, for this moment, we just say thank you and we bless you matchless name of the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and extinguish your candles and Merry Christmas. Grace and peace to you all.
Shasi. <laughs>